Art of the Kickstart, Episode 102. Welcome to the Art of the Kickstart.com, where entrepreneurs are constantly pushing the envelope to build businesses of greatness. Inventors are innovating, creating the products of the future, and backers stand strong for what they believe. These are some of the great thinkers, inventors, and leaders of our time. Here are their stories. Welcome to Art of the Kickstart, guys. Today, I am absolutely thrilled. We have an incredible guy on the line. We've got Seth Godin, someone who needs no introduction. We'll give him a little one anyways. He's an author, businessman. I'm pretty sure you know what he's done. Thanks for coming today, Seth. Well, it's a pleasure. I will be as helpful as I can. Thanks for doing this. I imagine you're going to be pretty helpful. I've read a couple of your books. They've been very impactful. And that's why we're reaching out. But first, with Art of the Kickstart, we like to start with a life quote, a success quote. But they get a bit bland. And I think that you can go a little bit deeper than that. What's the worst piece of advice that you hear pushed around business circles that founders fall for? 25 surefire ways that you can guaranteed succeed tomorrow by deceiving people, finding shortcuts, hustling, putting yourself out there, and generally being selfish. Hustling. I think that's absolutely true. We kind of talked about this before, but I, I think you take a long ball approach to this that a lot of founders, I mean, it's tough. I mean, let's face it. You're in a situation where you're financially set. How does someone coming up in the ranks take an approach like this and become successful? Well, I'm sure that that was a deliberately provocative. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I truly uh, appreciate. Here's the deal. If you don't have time to do it right, when exactly are you going to find the time to do it over? I was on the edge of bankruptcy for almost eight years. I was, At one point, my company had to send somebody by car to pick up a check because if we had waited for Federal Express, we would have missed payroll and 60 people would have lost their jobs. I know firsthand what it is to eat macaroni and cheese for dinner because the only alternative is to go get a job as a bank teller. So I am not just blowing smoke when I talk to people about how dangerous it is to look for shortcuts, to take shortcuts, how dangerous it is to try to find the short path, the hustle, the con, the the way that you will get to the front of the line by doing things that in the moment feel a little desperate. All of us have been through that, and what we see again and again is that you don't hear from people who come out on the other side who say, I did all the shortcut stuff. I'm really glad I did. You should too. What you hear from are the people who have been building a community, who have taken 20 years to become an overnight success. And you know, I really am disappointed when I see all the blog posts and all the Reddit links and all the hustle stuff that gets the clicks and gets the attention that everyone wants to be Psy because Psy got 250 million views for his YouTube and it went viral and isn't that wonderful. But in fact, it's better to be Amanda Palmer. It's better be the person drip by drip, day by day, who's on a path, does the work, brings generosity to the table and over time, earns, not fines, but earns real success. Yeah, would you rather win the lottery or build a business? And I think most people listening to this, they want to create something. That's the main reason I wanted to get you on here, though. 
because the mindset when you start on this. So this show is Art of the Kickstart. We're all about crowdfunding. And when you're crowdfunding something, you've got an idea. You just want to make that product, that business happen. How do you focus more on the long-term business, the long-term success of what you're trying to build versus creating something because you want to get it to market ASAP? Yeah, well, so I think you've framed the question completely backwards. If someone says, I have an idea, I want to kickstart it, how do I do it? They have already failed because Kickstarter is not good at that. That yes, once a week, some Kickstarter goes viral. Once a week, someone comes up with a Pebble watch or a cooler that does some magical thing and Kickstarter enables it. But it's only once a week. Even if it's once a day, do the math. It's not going to be you. That's a silly way to spend your time. The right way to frame the question is, what community am I here to serve? Does this community trust me? Have I earned the right to whisper to a community of people who would miss me if I am gone? Then you say, what does that community need me to make? And you make a thing for them. So, you know, my book project, which to this day is the most successful book project ever done on on Kickstarter, uh, hit its goal in three hours. However, it didn't take three hours. It took 15 years. It took 15 years of me earning the trust of a community of people. So when I went to them and said, I have some books for you, they all said, okay, we're in. And the fundamental error that so many people are making is they think, I need to do this to make my product work and then everything will take care of itself. Well, I have heard from many Kickstarter successes in quotes who made just enough money to now get themselves into this grind of having to make a product that they're not going to make enough profit on to live off of. And then they can't kickstart it again because they already kickstarted it once. Now what are they going to do? So they're stuck. And that the alternative is the Amanda Palmer alternative, which is to say, I got 20,000 true fans. How do I serve 20,000 people again and again so I can make the work I'm proud of? Okay. I like that. And I like that you delve into the, the true fans model. What if, let's play devil's advocate again, since we like to play that. If you have a real mission, some kind of burning passion, you're trying to focus on changing the world, fighting. We've got some eco issues. Let's say you've got something along those lines. It takes a while to develop a following. And I don't disagree that adding value is the most effective way to build a business that's essentially defensible. But how do you go about building that value in the beginning while at the same time building a business? Is there a way that you see that you can do that? Well, we see several ways that people have done it. The best, most reliable way is to have a day job so that you don't take shortcuts with your community building. Another way to do it, which applies only to a tiny fraction of people, is you persuade someone in Silicon Valley to put up money so that you can do it. I would say, for example, that Airbnb is an example of a company that has not wavered in what they're trying to do. They have not said, oh, now we're going to sell to business travelers. They have said, we are on this mission to do this drip by drip, day by day. The companies that people ostensibly respect don't act the way that the hustlers you're talking about act. So there's this huge disconnect that they rationalize, well, I really care, I have a passion about this, or 
I have to make money or I won't be able to keep doing it. But Kickstarter is not the answer. Kickstarter is not some magical way to pass the hat because your project is so amazing, just like infomercials weren't. You know, that the infomercial revolution of a bunch of years ago brought very, very few products to the world that we really, truly needed that couldn't have gotten to the world any other way. And Kickstarter isn't really about how do we get a product to the world that couldn't possibly exist without Kickstarter. Kickstarter is about how do I put the last touches on something I've been building for a long time? How do I activate my tribe so I can make my art? I think that is absolutely true. And it kind of plays to the whole 10% versus different mindset field. I was listening to an interview recently with Peter Diamantis, the guy behind XPRIZE. Sure. And I think, and I mean, a lot of us are familiar. Some of us aren't. Peter's concept is why play in the game of incremental improvement when you can change the game entirely? And I think what you're definitely talking about is changing the game entirely. So how do people up-level that kind of thinking to really make impacts in the world? All right, well, I think, again, there's a potential trap here, which is to say that changing the world is for other people. These are giant projects. I can't do a giant project. So I I have a friend who did a, a project for a toy for girls, and Kickstarter seems like a tempting way to do that. She had enough of a network that she could hit her minimum. But the network wasn't the natural audience for her product in the long run. So she takes a Kickstarter shortcut, gets enough money to get the tooling and stuff, makes the thing, and then is surprised when the next batch is hard to sell. Well, the people who sponsored the first batch didn't sponsor it because they wanted her toy. They sponsored it because they liked her. So the right way to do this is the way that it's been done for the last 200 years, which is go to one toy store and ask if you can demo your toy to people who are walking in. Go to one conference of educators and for free, give a speech about what you're trying to do. Then do it again. Then do it again. Then do it again. If you can't figure out how to sell to 10 people who are face-to-face with you, why do you think you're going to be able to sell to 1,000 people who are strangers online? You can't. And that's why everybody who's I know who makes a living as a professional speaker first made a living as a free speaker. And they made a living as a free speaker first And they made an impact as a free speaker, giving speeches to two people, and then four people, and then 12 people. And only after you're getting standing ovations from 400 people, do you get to go charge for what you do. Well, the same thing is true here. You can definitely seduce and trick lots of people who are your friends or friends of friends to support your first Kickstarter because it's novel. That's what they're supporting is novelty. But that doesn't mean you're going to build a business out of it because you haven't sold them on the habit of supporting you and your mission. Yeah, you don't really want to sell to your family the whole time. Otherwise, you're kind of bankrupting them to fund your, fund your own lifestyle. In a, very, in a very inefficient way, because when you think about it, Kickstarter, while the fees aren't unreasonable, is significantly inefficient at building and serving a market. The back-end user interface isn't particularly easy to work with. The fulfillment thing is a big hassle. Getting people's addresses is the pain in the neck. You can't change the rules in the middle even if you find out something after the thing has been funded. You know, I supported one of those remote control locks years ago. Well, I would pay the money just to stop bothering me and admit it didn't work because 
I keep hearing from them, we have to do this, now we have to do this, we have to do this. If you have a group of people who are in it for the right reason, you can build a network and keep going. That doesn't mean Kickstarter is a bad idea. It just means it's being misused by a lot of people who have their heads turned by the occasional viral hit. And Amazon versus something bigger, essentially. Just simple products versus game changers where you actually have the community to support them. I think that's yeah, really I mean, cool. And when you think about what is it that changes a game, well, we got to say, what's the game, right? So you can change the game of hacky sack by coming up with a new kind of hacky sack ball, for sure. The question is, how do you bring a hacky sack ball to the world? Well, if you're the commissioner of the World Hacky Sack League, and you've been volunteering as a referee and organizing and blah, 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 and all 10,000 leading hacky sack players know you and trust you, Kickstarter is a great way to launch your hacky sack ball. On the other hand, if no one in the hacky sack world knows you, then kickstarting your hacky sack ball to a bunch of people who just know you, but they don't play hacky sack, may get it funded, but you can't change the game because the people who play the game don't even know who you are. And this is the biggest problem that Kickstarters that fail have as well, is they'll create, it, they'll create an incredible product. I mean, hands down, they'll launch it. But then if you come without a community that's actually behind it, it just falls flat, doesn't rank, and then no one's going to find you. Even the, even the short-term Kickstarter success isn't going to happen unless you can bring a crowd that's actually interested. Bingo. So one thing I really wanted to get into, the dip, the entire concept behind the book. So uh, winners, winners never quit, right? Well, I don't agree with that. Oh, no, that's, that's the devil's advocate of ploy right. to get you going. Okay. You know, everyone who's listening to this either took karate lessons or wore a tutu or played the clarinet or the flute or did some other kid-like activity when they were seven, and they don't do it anymore. That we quit stuff all the time, but along the way, we got sold on this mythology that what we have to do is, if we want to make it into to doing anything, is stick with it all, everything, forever. But that's, of course, a trap for a bunch of reasons. One, we're less likely to start an important new thing. And two, we have to understand that almost everybody who does something important fails along the way. And that means that they quit. If you want to lose weight after Christmas, you will join all of those people who join the gym at the same time. And what you will see is that the gyms make their living because almost everyone quits in February. February is the tough part. If you can make it to April, you're going to be fine. But six weeks into it, most people quit. And we deny that. We pretend we don't quit, but we do. So my argument in the book, The Dip, is this. The worst time to quit is February. The worst time to quit is mile 20 of the Boston Marathon. The worst time to quit is right when it's really hard. Because when it's really hard is when everyone quits. And that's when all the value is created. So I'm arguing, don't start something unless you know where the dip is. Don't start something unless you know where that hard moment is. And go in knowing that the hard moment is there because then when it shows up, you won't be surprised and you will have adequate resources to get through it. So if you look around the world and say, oh, this is great. I'm going to do a Kickstarter. We'll raise a million dollars, yada, yada, yada. And you dive into it and then you discover the hard part. And the hard part is getting people 
to trust you enough to fund it for the right reason. If you don't have those resources, don't start. If you do have those resources, if you understand that that's the hard part, then you will go in knowing that that's the hard part and you will focus all of your energy on that part, not the stuff that doesn't make any sense. Okay. So one question I have based off of that is one theory that's put out a lot in the startup world recently is the concept of the lean startup, of getting something out there just to test the market. And it seems like, I might be wrong on this, but it seems like a lot of what we've talked about, you would advocate against something like this. Can you can you kind of go a little bit deeper into the concept? Sure. There, there's this idea of minimal viable product, and it has been completely misunderstood. Minimal has a very distinct meaning, as does viable. And they don't mean the first thing you dashed off. They don't mean what the hell. They don't mean let's let the market figure it out. What they mean is this is good enough to delight people that they will talk about it. This is good enough that people will be proud to own it and I will be proud that I made it. That what we're trying to get rid of when we accurately talk about MVP is all of the fear that comes from the committee meetings and the polishing and the pushing it back and the pushing it back and the doing it over and the doing it over because we're afraid of being criticized. That's stuff we got to get rid of. But we don't get rid of it by replacing it with a different kind of hiding, which is the hiding of, well, it was just a piece of junk anyway. And that is missed by a lot of people. So I am arguing that minimum viable product also means amazing. And if it's not amazing enough to get my attention and amazing enough for me to talk about, then it is not viable. Where's, where's the border come? How can you tell once it's ready for customers? That's something people struggle with. Right. And that's why I love the fact that your uh, project is called the art of Kickstarter, not the rules of thumb of Kickstarter or the mechanical checklist of Kickstarter, because the art is learning how to see. The art is having the good taste to tell junk from good stuff, right? That it's the good taste that lets Diane von Furstenberg know that this dress belongs in the window and this dress should be sent to Target, right? Because we need to be able to see. So if you can, here's a, a great exercise. Go look at the new Kickstarters being launched each day and in writing, preferably on a blog, predict which ones are going to work and which ones aren't before the market speaks. And if you get good at predicting based on what you know about the person who's, who's launching it, what you know about their tribe, and what you know about the product, if you get good at predicting it, then you know you have good taste because you will be probably good at predicting your own. But if you have no clue, if you're wrong over and over again, then I would strongly suggest you don't spend your own money and your own time launching a Kickstarter because you have no clue. You got to be accurate and precise. And I think that you have a clue, especially when it comes to entrepreneurs. You've worked with a ton of a ton of businessmen. You've written quite a few books on the subject, launched your own incredibly successful businesses. What would you say are some of the attributes? How do you go through kind of a spot check to say, this guy's going to make it, this guy's not? Well, first of all, I have failed more than anyone who's listening to this. So I think it's important to understand that I am not correct that often. I'm just correct and persistent a little bit more than some people. But I don't have a formula. Like I was in the book business for 10 years before I figured out 
how to see the difference between a book that was going to work and a book that wasn't going to work. And, you know, I've been on the internet since 1976 and done it, I was only 16, and done it professionally since 1989. And it has taken me a really long time. I looked at the web and I said, the web isn't going to work. It's just like Prodigy, but with ads. And I said that eBay, maybe eBay might work. I was running a company that could have become Pinterest and I didn't figure it out and become Pinterest. So I'm wrong all the time. What I do get the sense when I see certain things is that if someone behind something has a following that would miss it if they were gone. You know, so I, I was at an event where the CEO of American Express was taking questions. When you listen to people ask questions to the CEO of, of American Express, they ask totally different questions than when they're talking to someone from Visa or Chase or a bank. That people would miss American Express if they changed their rules or if they disappeared. No one would miss Chase Bank. They would just switch to a different bank. And it's that idea that this product would be missed, this service would be missed, that is at the core of what makes something certain to work. And number two, a giant one is when you look at something, do you say to yourself, people like me like things like this? And that simple question helps you understand what taste is like and how it works. I think that brings up a really good point on the second one. I think I know your answer, but I've got to ask the question anyways. So the passion versus profit, we've kind of covered it a little bit, but there's two avenues to build a business. You scratch your own itch or you find something that the market demands. Are you a scratch your own itch all the way guy? No, not at all. I, uh, I think most people find their passion in doing something that works. You find very, very few people who are passionate about making giant sculptures out of mud and manure because they get no positive feedback along the way. And having something work doesn't mean you get paid money, but it probably means you get paid attention. It probably means you get paid respect, not by necessarily everyone, not by enough people, but by some. And then we then decide once we got some of that going for us that that's what we love, that that's our passion. And so we're backing into it. I don't think anyone is born with passion for anything. I don't think Van Gogh was passionate about painting from his genes up because if he was living today, he probably would be in the computer business. That if Steve Jobs had lived 300 years ago, he wouldn't have sat around for 300 years waiting for Moore and the guys at Fairchild to invent the computer chip. He would have done something else. That we are culturally passionate about things, not genetically passionate about things. And so you can become passionate about a different thing if it relates to something else you care about. So for me, my itch is what does my community need from me? What work needs to be done that I'll be proud of when I'm done? And I won't be proud of it if I'm the only person who thought it was good work. When you're done, what scares you, Seth? What, what are you afraid of? My biggest fear for the last few years has been wasting the opportunity, wasting the privilege. It has taken me a long time to have the trust that I have. And I'm frequently thrilled and amazed that it has come my way. And I don't want to waste it. I personally don't think you're wasting at this point, Seth. You're changing a lot of lives. What are some examples of people that you've worked with or experiences that you've had as a direct result 
of your books, of your speaking that has just, they've just blown you away? Well, first, just to be clear, I don't do any coaching or consulting. And I do that on purpose because I think I can't possibly change somebody more than they can change themselves. So I don't want to be responsible for that. That said, what I've been amazed by is how often people take words that I wrote that mean one thing and decide they mean something else. And not only that, but turn it into something bigger and better and more beautiful than I ever could have hoped for. People who run nonprofits that have raised hundreds of millions of dollars and saved millions and millions of lives, people who make oil paintings that blow folks away, people, uh, I got a beautiful note from a hospice worker who deals with people in the last stages of cancer, and she's finding things in my work that I never even knew were there. I, in some ways, am a clock that's right twice a day, and people can see in my work what they need to see, and I'm thrilled when they see in that the confidence to go do something even more important. If I've seen further, it's because I've stood on the shoulder of giants. Seth, you're a giant. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I want to respect your time, and I know that we we scheduled this for half an hour. I have one last question for you, and that's, what should I have asked you that I didn't? What do you want to go into for the last bit to leave our listeners with? Well, Matt, I think that what I would highlight for the people who are listening to this is the case study of Matt Ward, a guy who lives thousands or tens of thousands of miles away from just about everyone who's listening to this, somebody who isn't taking an obvious short path, but is instead feeding a group of people for not a lot of obvious remuneration, but merely because he can. And when we find more and more people in our world that gets ever more connected who do this, we understand that we live in a connection economy now, not a stuff economy. The fact is, if 97% of the stuff on Kickstarter disappeared, almost nobody would miss it. We could find something one click away that's almost as good. That's not our scarce resource. Our scarce resource is who do we trust? Who are we connected to? Who is speaking up on our behalf? And we need more people to make that kind of work. So I'm glad you're doing it. I'm glad you're doing it as well, Seth. You're laying that brick every single day with the blog. And I'm sure it's helping helping people a ton. If people want to connect with you and they're not quite sure where to go, where's the best place? Uh, my new book is called What to Do When It's Your Turn. You can find it at yourturn.link. And if you want to read my blog, just type Seth into your favorite search engine and it'll be on the front page. Seth, thank you so much for coming on. It's been great talking to you. It's been enlightening and interesting. I'm sure people have benefited. Thanks. Thank you. Keep making a ruckus. I'll keep making a ruckus. You too. Keep up the chaos. Okay. Bye-bye. Hey guys, I'm your host, Matt Ward, and I want to thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Art of the Kickstart, where we believe inventors, innovators, and entrepreneurs are changing the world and bringing humanity forward into the future. If you liked the ideas in this episode, or you're interested in learning more about crowdfunding and how to kill it with your own Kickstarter campaign, you can check out more at artofthekickstart.com. And if you've been listening to the show, love the episodes, but you're not subscribed, that's got to change. You can go to artofthekickstart.com slash iTunes or slash Stitcher and get the episodes delivered magically to your phone. And if you like the show, I would 
love you forever if you leave a review on iTunes. It helps more aspiring inventors and creators out there find the show and find the information they need to kill it on Kickstarter. Until next time, thanks for tuning in, guys, and have an absolutely epic day.